Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with Bill Tung, Managing Director at Peaks Consulting and former Vice President of International Sales and Market Expansion at Columbia Sportswear. Bill brings a unique lens to the outdoor and fitness industries in China through his background in growing apparel brands in these sectors. On tap in this discussion is the ongoing explosion of the fitness culture in China, the sporting goods market in general, the difference between the China, Japan, and Korean markets, how the 2008 Beijing Olympics impacted the industry there, what fitness retail looks like in China, and how Japan's work culture influences their shopping habits and more. Enjoy. Going back to my first job at Cybex, I was selling fitness equipment to the Chinese Olympic Organizing Committee in Beijing, and they were procuring you know, world-class fitness equipment for their world-class Olympic uh, athletes at, at the training center. And you can picture going to Beijing in 87 and 88, Todd, it was, uh, there were no taxis. There was one, I think, international hotel, the Sheraton Great Wall at that, at that time. And, you know, talking to the officials in 1988, they said it was their dream to host the Olympics in Beijing someday. You know, and so when you're standing in the middle of Beijing and you can't get a taxi because there are none, you're just thinking, I mean, there's just no bloody way. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you very much, Todd. Greetings from Boston. If you could maybe just give us uh, and the audience uh, a little bit of your background and how you came to be so involved throughout the APAC region and really have a, have a great you know, Western plus Asian uh, collide uh, that you're going to be able to speak to. Sure. Uh, and, uh, thank you again for having me uh, on your podcast, uh, Todd. Well, I was uh, I was born in Hong Kong, uh, but uh, my family immigrated to the States uh, outside of Philadelphia. So I'm a, I grew up as a Flyers fan, uh, Todd, not as a Bruins fan. Um, so uh, we immigrated to the States in the late 60s uh, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So I had a, uh, you know, w- went to a public school, uh, went to Penn State University, but uh, always wanted to be in- involved in international business. So I uh, went to a place called Thunderbird out in Arizona as it focused on international uh, business. And uh, really, um, my first job out of school was for a fitness equipment manufacturer called Cybex based out of Long Island. And, and the job was to be selling, uh, flogging their fitness equipment in Asia. Uh, so they basically said, uh, there's the travel agency. Uh, here's the catalog price list. And here's the map of the world. You've got everything west of California. So go at it. So uh, spent a lot of time between Tokyo and Australia and India and all points in between. Uh, early on in my life. Uh, And then I was fortunate to move to Hong Kong and I was uh, in charge of sales and marketing for Prince Racket Sports uh, at that time. So uh, it was quite uh, interesting in the world of tennis and badminton and squash uh, at that time. So it was quite fun. 
Uh, and then I was uh, working at the Reebok organization in Hong Kong in a regional role. Uh, I was posted to Tokyo for a few years, uh, then over to London and then back to uh, Hong Kong. But uh, no, I, I spent 13 years at Columbia Sportswear as their head of international uh, sales, really covering all, all the markets outside of uh, the United States. And then uh, the last few years, just a, a brief period of time uh, heading up uh, the international sales at New Balance Athletics. Uh, and then more recently at uh, Fanatics, uh, which has the license for various uh, sport teams and sport leagues around the world. Um, but uh, I spent a lot of time in Asia, certainly lived in Hong Kong, lived in Tokyo, but uh, certainly um, with a lot of the companies I work with, China, uh, Korea and Japan were very uh, focal points for uh, business growth. Okay, awesome. That's going to set us up really well to talk, uh, you know, to have some fun conversation, especially around uh, the sports and athletics and another bit of a field that I wasn't aware that you were a part of, which was the fitness. Do you still pay attention to, you know, back to your very first early days? I don't think I could even repeat that branding. Cybex? Cybex. B-Y-B-E-X. Yeah. I actually find the fitness culture one of the fastest moving, fastest changing elements to to Asia, where I, I just don't think they were that much deep into sport and and maybe transitively into fitness. But now it is going gangbusters. Yeah, for sure. You know, in the, in the late 80s, when I started working at Cybex, a fitness center in, in Asia were mostly just in your uh, foreign hotels uh, in, in Hilton's and Sheridan's and Hyatt's. I mean, a, 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 a fitness center, like a 24 hour fitness or something like that, just, you know, for the for the masses and for the public really didn't exist. Uh, it, it really took a more of a foothold in uh, in Japan, uh, where, the, where the young people were still, uh, you know, it was breaking out and getting into uh, taking memberships of fitness clubs in Korea, absolutely in hotels. Uh, catering uh, to the foreign guests and to the local population as well that would sign up for them. But in uh, in China, forget about it. It was just always just in the, in the hotels. Uh, and obviously that certainly progressed over the years to yoga studios and Pilates studios and uh, has developed quite a bit. Tell us a little bit about your time with Columbia. I'm very familiar with Columbia. I know I'm in Canada. We Canadians, we need to stay warm. You know, I'm pretty sure Canada is a pretty large market for Columbia. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the mainland Chinese consumer sporting goods market in general, just, you know, from your perspective through working with Columbia. Yeah, interesting. You know, back when I joined in 2003, Columbia was already had a subsidiary in Japan, already had a subsidiary in Korea. Uh, China was virgin territory. And at that time, Columbia had a distributor based in Hong Kong, the, the Swire Resources Group, the part of the Swire Pacific uh, organization. And uh, we, we were working with them to you know, explore what was going on in China. And you know, from the outdoor apparel industry at that time, there were three brands selling in China, and they were all domestic OEM brands. So there was no Patagonia, there was no North Face, there was no Arcteryx. There was no Canada Goose uh, at that time. Um, so we, we met with, uh, we thought there was an opportunity here. We had business in Hong Kong, albeit small, of course, but we thought, uh, you know, it'd be uh, good to have the first mover opportunity to move into China. So uh, I remember clearly, uh, certainly in early 2004, we met with about two dozen uh, sports retailers. And, you know, th these business entrepreneurs, they were running retail for Nike, Adidas, Reebok at the time. And uh, we did the whole song and dance about the outdoor uh, industry, 
um, and, and about uh, Columbia Sportswear and uh, how there might be an opportunity in China. Um, and uh, so, so it was uh, rather devastating, actually, because we, after the presentation, we met with each of them one on one. Uh, and uh, it was uh, quite unanimous that uh, all 24 of them gave us a big thumbs down that they were just not interested. And it was very interesting. You know, these were very sophisticated, uh, worldly entrepreneurs. They all knew about Columbia Sports, where they traveled around the world. Uh, but the common theme was, well, Bill, nobody's skiing in China. Nobody's snowboarding. Nobody's camping. Nobody's trail running. So all these activities about outdoors nobody's doing in China. Um, so do we need to keep warm and dry? Yes, absolutely. But there was just, for the actual activity itself, it was just a big goose egg. So uh, working with the executives at Swire Resources, we said, well, hell, we'll, we'll just uh, set up our own little shop ourselves. Uh, so if I recall correctly, it would have been sometime later in 2004, set up the smallest shop and shop. Uh, I think it was at Yao Han department store over on Pudong side of Shanghai. Um, it was up on the sports floor. I remember visiting, you know, you got Nike had their nice space. Adidas had their nice space. All the athletic brands had their nice space. And I think we had three pieces of fixed ring in a dark corner uh, with some jackets and uh, down jackets and Gore-Tex jackets on there. And uh, so it was a very modest way of uh, starting a business there. Wanted to talk about the ins and outs of really driving a brand you know, were you paying attention to what some of the other guys were doing well and maybe some of the realizations that hit you when you started on the ground in China doing what you were doing? And how did you start to go through customer acquisition or brand uh, recognition in China? What were some of the strategies that you deployed? Were there certain sectors or demographics or even certain sports that you started to target uh, to get some early traction there? Yeah, for Colombia, you know, it was very much uh, dictated on the features, advantages and benefits of the product to justify those price points. Because, you know, in China, anybody could buy a down jacket. But why were they buying your products uh, that kept you warm and dry? And so, you know, we had our proprietary technologies. We used Gore-Tex back in those days. So it was very much in-store marketing uh, to very much educate consumers. You know, why are you going to be paying 2x? 3x uh, retail price points for buying something. Um, so certainly uh, it was bring, about bringing the heritage, the authenticity about the brand and bringing that to live, uh, bringing that alive in store. Uh, so it was very much of an education process uh, early on. Uh, and, and certainly bringing, you know, Columbia had had a heritage back to 1930s in the United States. So I think that was certainly very much appreciated as, as it was in Japan and Korea. That was an authentic brand. Uh, and that you know, just something coming out of a factory uh, in China. So I think that those were very important uh, things of uh, authenticity and history uh, and, and authenticity. Looking back, because you have, uh, you know, deep experience, not just in China, but um, obviously Japan and Korea. Can you point to anything unique about and 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 kind of splay apart those three markets. They're not, you know, and it's just one of the themes that we find. You have to talk to people like, no, it's it's not a homogenous kind of set of of customers when you go to those countries. They're actually 
quite different. And you have to know that and realize that going in. How would you separate them, especially when it comes to maybe sports fitness or sports apparel, uh, even through your work with Columbia? It's a slightly, how would you differentiate those three markets and, and those three customer sets? Yeah, one size does not fit all. It's um, very simplistic that a lot of American companies, North American companies, well, it sells really well here at REI or at Canadian Tire. Uh, so so wh- why wouldn't it sell well in Tokyo, Seoul and uh, Shanghai? So that's a bit of, uh, to be polite, ignorance and uh, to be polite, uh, just a bit of laziness as well, quite frankly, uh, t- to make those assumptions. So, you know, back in the, the early days, it was just like you took your global collection and you put it into the stores and you see what would fly. And then you realize, oh, hey, this is way too big or the size and fit doesn't work. And so then you need to go back and work with your product team to uh, adjust your size and fits. Uh, and so, well, you know, th- these products work well, these p- products don't work well. And then how are you going to uh, modify your product and your designs to uh, be more fitting of the local consumers? You know, for Columbia Sportswear here in the United States and Canada, the consumers were more ru- uh, suburban, if not rural, uh, much more uh, male than female, uh, much more of an older consumer. And whereas in Asia, the consumers were urban and certainly younger uh, and certainly much more fashion forward. And so were they buying the products for the same reasons to go skiing uh, in, the, in the case of Japan and Korea? Absolutely. Were they buying it to keep warm and dry? Uh, absolutely. But there was certainly more of a fashion element uh, to the brand. So fortunately at Columbia, we had the uh, flexibility and foresight to uh, localize design in Japan localized design in Korea uh, to the point where probably 75, 80% of the styles sold in those countries were completely localized. Um, So you can say, oh, the brand's gone off in different directions, but you still kept the DNA and the history of the brand intact. And even though the the product was, uh, you know, it was still outdoors, it was still kept you warm and dry, it was still functional, uh, but just had a higher degree of, I would say, style, design, fashion element uh, behind that. Yeah, I would imagine, uh, not to put words in your mouth, but um, from from my perspective, I would expect that you would lean in on uh, more of the, the fashion, the style of the brand, because potentially some of the technology might not I'm saying that it's lost on the on the consumer, but it's not going to be as necessary or as important if they aren't really kind of scaling Mount Everest. Right. You're absolutely right, Todd. Um, The thing is that you needed that technology edge or your concept of technology just as a point of differentiation and to help, you know, know, justify those price points. Because, you know, back in the early days, pre-internet and and online selling, I mean, my gosh, I I mean, in China and Korea and Japan, you're almost selling this product at whatever price you could get. And I don't want to say price was no object, but early on days... Yeah, you you could. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it price gouging, but it was uh, it, it was you know you're selling product that, that was selling in North America for a hundred retail, and you'd be selling it in China for $180, retail, and obviously that didn't last very long until uh, everybody had a smart a smartphone. So let's talk a little bit about a serious sporting event that may have had a lot of impact, which was the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, and how that may have 
brought significant awareness or appreciation or interest in fitness and sporting? And what did that do to your markets and your products and your ability to do your job in Asia at that time? Yeah, you know, certainly at Columbia Sportswear at that time, that was our fourth year into the marketplace. Um, you know, and Columbia Sportswear, unlike the Nike and Adidas, is not so much into athletic competition. It's more about the activity. Uh, and certainly this was a summer event, whereas Columbia is more of a fall-winter uh, brand. But but nevertheless, it certainly, uh, uh, I, I was in China during, during the time, and certainly it was just an awareness of health, fitness, uh, moving, and just developing a healthier lifestyle. Um, and, and so certainly I think that just the awareness was uh, still in its early stages, I would say. Uh, I, I think it was, a, it was a, certainly a great event for the athletic brands. Uh, certainly, I, I think it was at that time, Mark Parker, the CEO of, of, of Nike, was quoted as saying, we can't in- invest enough in China because just they saw the opportunity. They saw the writing on the wall. And uh, certainly, I think by 2008, Nike had reached about a billion dollars in revenue in China. Who knows what they are today? But uh, they were just ramping up, and, and they had started ten years prior. So it's not like that was uh, their entry point. They were certainly on 1988, and in the 90s, they were already laying the foundation for the brand, uh, as as was Adidas. Uh, but an interesting story. When I, my first, going back to my first job at Cybex, I was selling fitness equipment to the Chinese Olympic Organizing Committee in Beijing, and they were procuring you know world class fitness equipment for their world class Olympic uh, athletes at, at the training center. And you can picture going to Beijing in 87 and 88, Todd. It was, uh, there were no taxis. There, there was one, I think, international hotel, the Sheraton Great Wall at, the, at that time. And, you know, talking to the officials in 1988, you know, they were saying that it was there. You know, keep in mind, China had just started to go back to the Olympics, LA Summer Games 84. You know, prior to that, I mean, they weren't in Montreal in 76. And, they, you know, so so maybe they were in Moscow in 80. But um, but but just certainly they were just coming back in the Olympics. And uh, in speaking with the officials, they said it was their dream to host the Olympics in Beijing someday. You know, and so when you're standing in the middle of Beijing and you can't get a taxi because there are none, you're just thinking, I mean, there's just no bloody way that you guys have the infrastructure to host the Olympics and uh, lo and behold. And then, then they got the Winter Olympics around the corner next year. So um, and, or two years from now. So that, uh, that'll be very interesting. But in terms of winter sports, you know, that, that just, you know, skiing was something so way out there, you know, like golf. It was just not accessible uh, for, for the masses. And that's something that's been developing over the last few years, as have trail running events, mountain climbing events, as have marathon events. So certainly, you know, it, it's in the last 20 years, it certainly just exploded this whole uh, concept and idea of, of health and fitness, uh, so which, which has been fantastic. And certainly that was with as rising incomes and certainly uh, more leisure time. And more infrastructure as well, you know, for the things that are expensive to do, right, you know, which is skiing or playing hockey or or some of these other activities. It's expensive infrastructure. The The infrastructure's upkeep is expensive for the whoever's, you know, managing the, the facility. And then, of course, the sport itself, uh, even just to get there, it's you know, it's not like you can run out to the into the school field and start playing basketball or, or, or soccer, right? I mean, this is, there's a reason why these are like the most worldly, most popular sports is because there's, they're relatively easy and accessible and, and, and cheap to get in and have some fun and play. 
Well, precisely. I mean, if you're growing up in China, Todd, and you want to play golf, but you know, if mom and dad don't belong to the private golf course, you're not playing golf. You know, it, it's a, it's as simple as that. So that's a, that a good point. That that is that's another one on on that extreme end as well, for sure. And that's sort of like Pan Asia, quite frankly, because the number of public golf courses are just a handful. So. Just the accessibility. Absolutely. Uh, for a moment, because we're already talking about the Olympics, maybe I'll bring you into that conversation about the next Olympics coming up here soon. Just to quickly tap on, uh, piggyback on the last conversation. What you know? What are what are you doing now? How are you anticipating in your world? This obviously is something that I think everybody from the background of of whether you're a fan or you know sports apparel and brands. This is the next whatever mistakes people made in 2008 with their brands trying to get into China and leverage the Olympics. They're going to fix them this time. Right. So can you talk a little bit about the preparations, the strategies, the excitement, what's going on uh, in the sports and apparel world uh, or even the fitness world looking towards the next Olympics in 2022? Yeah, I think for a new brand that's looking to go into China and I'm consulting with a number of brands as we speak, because, you know, it's just been about China, China, China. And so whether you're a sporting leisure brand or a luxury brand, um, you know, it's all about getting online uh, in China. So you can say, well, everybody and their mother's in China already. Well, that's not true. I mean, certainly there are a lot of brands that uh, haven't uh, haven't gone into China and yet they're, they're desperate to break into the marketplace. And maybe they have zero brand awareness in China or very low brand awareness in China. Uh, it's all about getting on uh, a digital platform, working with the local TP. You know, obviously everyone wants to get on Tmall or Jingdong, JD. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, you know, just because you're there, it's not going to work. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the last number of years, there have been many brands that have tried and failed uh, in China. So just it's not like there's 1.4 billion people just waiting for you. So I, I always believe it's more of a multi-pronged attack uh, or approach, Todd, where it's just not about being online. It's just you need to have a physical presence as well because the consumers still need to feel and touch and experience your brand. And uh, certainly I think for somebody who's new going into China specifically, I think that's still very important. What should expectations be for a brand when you tell them you do need to have a physical presence? It's not, it's not nascent. It's not dead, but here's what your expectations should be. Here's what you should do. And here's what you should expect from the physical presence side of things. Well, I think, you know, are you going to, the thing is that, are you going to be operating that brick and mortar stores yourself? Then you need to set up a subsidiary uh, or do you want to find a local partner? Uh, if you're going to find a local partner, is that some way that's uh, going to be a joint venture or are you, or are you going to find a local distributor slash licensee uh, that, that you're going to work with? Um, so to establish that physical presence, are you going to have flagship stores in the first tier cities? Or are you, you know, shopping shops just in the department stores, you know, what does that mean for you uh, for that physical presence? And then how do you marry that with your online presence with your own website, uh, put, having your website on, on the Tmall marketplace? And how do you make sure that you're managing your price points uh, to be consistent and, and your marketing as well? So I think a lot of companies get sort of mixed up. Oh, we're going to, we're going to list with, you know, company A to take us online, but we're going to work with company B to uh, open up stores. And then you find out they're at each other throats because they're undercutting each other on pricing or inconsistencies that way. 
when you're starting to manage your digital, I'm assuming that e- e-commerce and being able to facilitate e-commerce needs to be a big part of that. What about product positioning, even physical product placement? Where should you be thinking about or what should you be thinking about really when it comes to you're going to go, you're going to make a big splash, you're going to have online, you're going to have e-commerce, but where should the products be when you're going to do that? Yeah, well, well, let me address, I think so many of the companies that I've been advising get so excited about T-Mall's double eleven. You know, is it, well, holy cow, they're selling billions of dollars of product. We, we need to get our portion of that. Well, you need to dig into what are the brands actually selling, you know, and early on that double 11 event were for brands like Nike and Columbia and, and what, whatnot to be selling their excess inventory, like an outlet, right? And then it developed into, wow, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's got so much momentum, so many eyeballs on this uh, and, and it's developed so quickly. Then it developed into, oh, we're going to be just selling, you know, made for that event, you know, so like made for outlet, made for double 11, because, you know, unless you have excess inventory, are you, do you want to be selling your inline product at deep discounts on double 11? Uh, and, and then that's causes all sorts of uh, uh, challenges and problems for, for the brands. So I think today for on double 11, you get, you get a great deal. Absolutely. But it's either an excess merchandise or it's made for the event. I think if I was a brand too, and I was I was phasing out a product or a model or a line of something, you know, I'd be like, okay, let's do that, but let's delay it a couple of months and then hit it hard on eleven eleven, and we might be able to, you know, have a have a have a nice large liquidation uh, all at the same time to be able to move on to our next product lines. Indeed, and I think just going back to that issue of going into China with a new brand and, and the concept in North America, American Canada of wholesaling to a Canadian tire or to an REI or a Dick Sporting Goods doesn't exist. So, so if you want to sell those shoes or those jackets, uh, you sign the lease yourself uh, to sell the, or, or you find somebody to do it for you. Um, yes, there are all these department stores, but you're not selling to the department store. They're acting as landlords. You, you, need, you need to lease the space in that store uh, for whether it's a hundred square meters or a thousand square meters, you know, whatever the size of your space is going to be. Uh, so it's a very different concept that that whole idea of, of wholesaling, uh, in, in China and Korea is very similar. You need to, you need to manage it yourself or find a partner to do so. On that topic and the last, the last topic, I, I want to move on to talking a little bit about Japan here as well, but staying on China, one last question, do they have a large, big box type of store. You know, we have Canadian Tire, which is kind of our, our thing in Canada. You know, you'll have an MEC uh, equipment co-op. Uh, sometimes the Targets and, and, and Walmarts will have those departments. But what does that look like in China? Do they have large, big box department stores that are just sporting good department stores? Or is it self-managed, operated, independent mom and pop shops? Yeah, a, a good question, Todd, because that, that's historically it was about the mono brand store or shop and shop experience. If you wanted to buy a Columbia uh, uh, jacket, you had to go to a Columbia store. 
or Columbia Shop and Shop. You wanted a pair of Air Jordans, you had to find a physical Air Jordan uh, uh, Nike store. Um, the the multi brand retail uh, big box uh, previously didn't exist. Now, Decathlon from France, they've got quite a number of uh, uh, of their big box stores. Uh, they're selling mostly their own private label, uh, whether it's swimwear or outerwear or, or what other product might be. Um, you know, the big, you know, Dick Sporting Goods hasn't landed in China yet. Uh, and so it would be interesting if they did. Uh, some of the uh, Japanese uh, retailers have tried. Uh, the Russian, uh, a very large Russian uh, re- uh, sports retailer called Sportmaster has a number of stores. But I think still in the mind of the consumer, they like to shop brand and have that brand experience when they're going out to retail. Uh, and that's very similar to what happened in Korea as well. Uh, just that that multi-brand retail is certainly not the majority, certainly still the minority. So then moving on to Japan, maybe give us a bit of a baseline. You know, tell us a little bit. What is what is the Japan sports and apparel uh, fitness market? What, are those, what does that look like? Where is it growing? How fast is it growing? Uh, and then maybe even go ahead and juxtapose that against the Korean one. Yeah, sure. I think the challenge of Japan is, is an aging population. You know, and the aging population, as it is in Korea as well, it's not aging even faster, but certainly obviously very high disposable income. And, you know, the athletic sport brands, outdoor brands have all been quite well established in Korea and Japan over the years. Um, and certainly, you know, I, I think with, with the Japanese consumer, I always say this, ignore uh, the concept of Japanese uniqueness at your peril. It's good advice. Uh, so, so whether you think that whether you think that we, whether real or imagined, um, I, I think certainly that's to be respected and that's to be understood because the Japanese consumers' concept of brands, their expectations on specifically quality uh, and service, uh, I think, are uh, really at the pinnacle. You know, I've always said that if you can satisfy Japanese consumers' expectations about quality, then you've got the rest of the world covered. Well said. You know, and it, yeah, and, I, and it doesn't matter if you're selling a Louis Vuitton pocketbook for thousands of dollars or a cotton T-shirt at Uniqlo. There's a certain expectation of quality for those price points uh, in, in between. So I, I know at Columbia Sports, where we had to uh, do, do certain modifications and adjustments to make sure that the quality was at a much significantly higher level because the consumer's expectations are, uh, uh, are just high. I mean, they're spoiled for choice in, in Japan. You know, there's a quip in the tech world that says Google only loves you once everybody else does. Just a bit of a play on their algorithms, right? You know, so there's somebody loving you once everybody else does. And then there's somebody loving you and then everybody else does. Would you put Japan in the first category or the second category? I think the first one, perhaps. Yeah, if I understand the con- your, your definitions uh, precisely. But uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of brands have gone to Japan and have had to make significant modifications. I mean, I think there are very few brands that have that are purely as is from their home market. Uh, just from a, a marketing standpoint, but really just from, from a product modification standpoint, not just in size and fit, but like I said, design, quality, uh, it just needs to be uh, much more sharp. You really need to bring your A game to Japan. So talking about that A game and when it uh, applies to online presence, what 
Can you tell us, you know, even the unique particulars about existing online in China? How do you need to look and feel? What is the experience of shopping for your brand need to look like? What is the payment options uh, need to look like? The delivery need to look like? The packaging need to look like? What is, you know, what can you tell us a little bit about how to manage that online experience as a brand in China? You know, I think the consumer expectation is going to vary tight depending on, you know, whether you're a mass brand or a luxury brand. Um, but, but having said that, you know, it, it, you, you got to be on mobile. You know, because whatever that percentage is, it's not what you and I are doing right now off of our laptops or desktops. So, so it's all about, you know, mobile shopping that I think is certainly a much higher percentage of how consumers engage with brands. Uh, I, I think it is very important. So, um, but, you know, I, I think certainly the expectations of delivery and packaging, certainly you're going to have to meet those you know, world-class uh, expectations from, from the consumer. I don't think that's uh, any different, quite frankly, than, than anywhere else in, in the world. Uh, but, you know, if you're in Lanzhou, China, out in Gansu province, then maybe you're sort of understanding that maybe it's going to take another day or two to get to you. But, uh, you know, I think that the infrastructure uh, in, in China has developed so that, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty awesome to as it is today versus not that long ago. I know I'm, I'm giggling because the, the logistics and supply chain in China was just phenomenal. Like it was, it yeah. was so incredible the way how fast you could get things and send things around. I mean, it was just awesome. Yeah. You know, I mean, these days you get the high speed train from Shanghai to Lanzo it, and it takes you what, six hours. Whereas before it would take you five days uh, to, to, to cross the country. So it, it is quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. I stopped flying to Beijing from from Shanghai and started taking the train. The train. Absolutely. Just, I mean, the train took you right downtown. You didn't have to sit in traffic for over an hour from the airport to get downtown after you even got there and went through the customs and the whole thing, right? So, yeah. And and occasionally, you know, in five G is going to help a lot with this. You actually have internet. You could actually work on the train much more easily uh, and actually send emails. <laughs> okay, a little bit about the work culture uh, of Japan. They're famously known for how hard and how long they work, right? And we know that China has the 996 and Japan would probably, you know, go take them to task on that too. How does that impact the way they shop, when they shop, what they're buying, what they're wearing, what they're using it for? Uh, interesting. You know, the, the Japanese term is Kuroshi. It was just, they were worked Kuroshi. to death. Yes, they, they know they died because they were, and that, that was uh, that happened to a number of uh, executives. Uh, you know, mostly in the '80s, perhaps in the '90s. I think that's changed a lot, Todd. Where, where a lot of uh, companies are not expecting you to put 80 hours a week into the office. So I think that's certainly been a change. I think younger uh, executives. Uh, under 35, they won't do that. Uh, they, they won't tolerate that, quite frankly. I, I think there's certainly, uh, there was a time and place where uh, nobody dared to leave the office until the boss did. And so if the boss was there till 10 o'clock at night, uh, you were there till 10 o'clock at night. And so um, I think that the young people just are not tolerating that. They'll just up and leave and find another company to work for that has much more reasonable work hours. I know at Columbia Sportswear, when we had a subsidiary, we do have a subsidiary there. Uh, I made sure that the GM left at a reasonable time so that the other staff would feel comfortable leaving you know, before eight o'clock, uh, but, but still very long hours. But, you know, it's it's not, oh, they worked very hard. They were there till nine o'clock. Well, what did they do? 
nothing, but they were there till nine o'clock. So, you know, equating long hours at the office to working hard and being efficient uh, is certainly a misnomer. So uh, I know the companies that I work with at New Balance and, and, and Columbia, we're having subsidiaries there. We always made sure that the employees, uh, you know, got the hell out at, at a reasonable time. Were they working longer hours than anybody else around the world? Absolutely. But, uh, you know, we tried to make it, you know, not past seven o'clock, which, you know, try, try doing that here in the North America. You know, you'd have a riot on your hand. Everybody would go social uh, and be posted. I at 6.30 p.m. I'm still at the office. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's changed a lot, Todd, from, you know, the last generation to this generation. People just uh, ha- having more free time and uh, and, and using the, the, their social time more. So that's good. That's got to have a positive impact on the industry then for sure. I wanted to ask maybe for two or three nuggets of wisdom because you you've you've been around you've seen it all now you're consulting what are the two or three things that you would want to if pieces of advice that you would want to pass along to go global brands as they're thinking about going to china going to japan maybe going to korea what you know are the most important the things that you found over the years you have continuously had to repeat yourself on trying to drive a message home about how to do that properly? Yeah, good question, Todd. I I think the first important step is that your own internal organization has to have that global mindset from the C-suite through the rank and file. It, It can't be, oh, you know, it's those two guys over there that have the responsibility of us selling in Asia. Because you know, if they don't have the support from the CEO and all the execs in the C-suite and the people throughout the organization, uh, th- that's just not going to happen uh, because there's so many things that need to be done from an operation standpoint, sourcing, product design, finance, uh, planning and operations. Uh, if you're setting up a subsidiary with the help of HR, uh, so it's to have that right mindset within your organization to begin with, uh, because I've seen it time and time again. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, those two guys over there that has the responsibility, but nobody else wants to help them. Uh, so I think that, that that's number one. Uh, I think number two, uh, you know, I think, Americans that like to make it very simple. You know, Europe looks like this. So whether they're English or Italian, it's quote unquote European. And Asia looks like this, you know, whether they're Singaporean, Thai or Japanese, it looks like this. So, so it's very easy to do these broad strokes uh, across that. But uh, so it's like then this next step is to understand, well, what is your competitive set? Who are your consumers? How are you going to be going to market in, uh, in those specific countries? Because it's three different markets, three different uh, histories, three different uh, uh, business cultures. Uh, you keep your brand DNA consistent. But then, you know, how you go to market and engage with your customers and clients is going to be a different approach for each of those marketplaces. And uh, I I found the companies that uh, try to cookie cut that make a lot of mistakes. Um, And then I think the third point is is making sure that you have the right people uh, who are engaging in your international business. Um, You know, it's not even... Previously, there are companies today that uh, the people that are responsible for the international markets also have responsibility for the domestic market. You know, you, you know, Todd, you're in charge of sales to Canadian Tire. So you're in charge of sales. Well, you know, we'll just add China and France and Japan and Korea onto your plate as well, because you're in sales after all. 
Well, if you've never been to those places, how the hell are you going to know what what to do? So it's uh, so it's like well, why don't you, I think it's a very costly lesson to learn. So why don't you just go off and buy the talent and hire people who have been there and done that to uh, that, that understand uh, what you need to do internally to set yourself up for success, and then what needs to be done locally uh, based on your strategy. Are you setting up a subsidiary or are you just finding a licensee? I mean, both have those pitfalls. And if you don't have the right people making those decisions, then um, you know, that, then you're rolling the dice. Absolutely. No, that's absolutely great, brilliant advice, Bill. I, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. If people want to get more of that similar advice, where can they find you and how can they get in touch with you? Uh, I, I'm on LinkedIn under William Tone, T-U-N-G. Um, so I think that's probably the easiest way. I've got my contact details here. I'm based in Boston. And, uh, you know, with my consulting business, I'm working with partners around the world today. And uh, we're doing exactly this, where we're helping brands, whether apparel or footwear, uh, break into new markets uh, around the world from Russia to Argentina to China and all points in between. Awesome. Okay. Last question. Anybody comes to mind that you think or would recommend that I talk to that the audience would love to hear from? Uh, sure. I got lots of uh, fellow colleagues. Uh, my, my, my good buddy, John Ram, is the head of global sales at Champion uh, Apparel. I think uh, he'd be somebody who's uh, very articulate, very bright uh, uh, to speak with. Um, so uh, Tim Boyle, the, the CEO of Columbia Sportswear, uh, you want to get him? Uh, he's certainly uh, somebody who would share his time. He's uh, got his wealth of experience of uh, Columbia Sportswear stories. Uh, so those are two just off the top of my head. I could go on and on so brilliant okay well bill thank you so much for coming on the show obviously we really really appreciate your time we appreciate your insights and thank you very very much for coming on the show and delivering them to me and to our audience thanks todd appreciate it big honor all the best growing a company is hard doing it in a foreign market exponentially so the best piece of advice i can give you is not to do it alone When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.